growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. If you feel like I'm throwing you under the bus this morning, it's just because I don't want to be under the bus alone. I understand that we struggle walking by faith. Have you ever gone somewhere expecting to find something, but when you got there, they didn't have it? Well, if you go to a steakhouse, you'd expect to find a steak on the menu, right? If you go to a computer store, you'd expect to find computers there, wouldn't you? Well, when it comes to faith, are there certain places where you would expect to find it? I walk under His banner. I profess Him as my Lord and Savior. I believe He died on the cross for my sins, rose again for my justification, and He's coming again to receive me unto Himself. What about us? Can faith be found in our lives? Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. We're in Mark chapter 6 today in our series entitled, Jesus, the Real Action Hero. Jesus has been traveling around to various towns, teaching and performing miracles. And in chapter 6 of the book of Mark, we find Jesus making a trip back to his hometown, Nazareth. They had heard all about the things that Jesus was doing, so you would expect that Jesus would be well-received in the town where he grew up. But as Pastor Clay is going to explain today, faith isn't always found where you would expect to find it. Now here's Pastor Clay. came across the story of a a guy named Charles Blondine. I'd read it years ago and kind of forgotten about it, but in preparation for this week, I uh, happened to come across that story. Charles Blondine uh, was a uh, French tightrope walker. (laughs) It's good work if you can get it. (laughs) Right up until the, uh, no, no. Anyway, his, uh, his most uh, famous moment, uh, I guess you could say, uh, took place on September 14th, 1860, when Charles Blondine uh, became the first person to ever tightrope walk across above Niagara Falls. Wow, I thought y'all would be more impressed than that. <laughs> I mean, I don't see any of y'all lining up to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope, I'm just saying. Anyway, 11,000 feet. They stretched this, this rope 11,000 feet, over a quarter of a mile across uh, the falls. And he walked across it, suspended 160 feet above the falls. Uh, from what I understand, it was such a big deal that, that just mass numbers of people on the Canadian side and the American side all came to see this event. And he... And he not only successfully walked across on a tightrope, but uh, as, as he was successful, as he got to the other side, he turned around and, and did it again. And he not only just walked across, he began to do all different kinds of uh, stunts, if you will. He, he walked across uh, in a sack. He had, in, in a sack. That's what, that's what he said. He had a sack on. On stilts. All right, that was a little freaky, I got to tell you. On stilts, he walked across. On a bicycle, he rode across, back and forth. He's going back and forth, and he's, and he's changing his age. Blindfolded, hello, blindfolded, he went across. And the last, the last thing that he did was he, he carried a sack of potatoes across on a wheelbarrow. He rolled a wheelbarrow across with a sack of potatoes in it. And, and with each time, with each success across, I mean, they said the crowd was just just going crazy, and they're, they're shouting his name, Blondine, Blondine, and they're just excited and everything else. And so he does that last time. He gets to the other side, and then he, whoever could hear him, I guess on whatever side he was, he yells out, how many of you believe 
that I can go back across the falls with this wheelbarrow with a human being in it. And they went crazy. They're clapping and they're like, yeah, yeah, let's see, that's awesome. We know you can do it. You're the great blondine. And so then he says, who will volunteer to get into the wheelbarrow? Yeah. Chirp, chirp, chirp. Not a single volunteer. And, it, and it, it, what struck me about that is just, it just reminded me that saying that we believe something or saying that we have faith can be a very different thing from showing that we believe or showing that we have faith in something. Uh, last week, we talked uh, about trials, a lot about trials. And, and, um, and so I, it's, it's great. And the providence of God is working our way through the book of Mark. It's great that today we talk about faith because obviously faith is essential as, as you go through trials. I don't know how many of you have ever been in a trial. I'm just curious. I, a few of y'all. If you've ever been through a trial, then you understand the significance and the importance of having faith in it. By the way, uh, concerning last week's message, I just want to say, th- you know, a number of you um, uh, messaged me and sent emails and things just, just saying how much the message meant to you last week and how much it encouraged you and all that stuff. And some of you uh, put some stuff uh, on Facebook about it. I, I know like, uh, my brother Joe Sams, I think, put something on Facebook about it. It was very very kind about the message and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I just really want, want to encourage you to do it. By the way, Joe, I don't, I don't, think, I, uh, I don't think I liked your message. I don't think I like, liked it. Um, I, I, I looked at it a while and then I thought, man, it might seem kind of self-serving if I like this. I don't know what I should or not. <laughs> but, I, but what I want to say is I encourage you guys, listen, we live in the world of social, social media for better or for worse. So use it, Okay. Use it. If you, if you come out of your life group and you've just been blessed by what's gone on that week or they've blessed you in some way or whatever, man, post it. Tweet it. Twit it. Do something with it. You know what I'm saying? Put it on Facebook. If, if, if the service was fantastic, you know, the, if, if, you go out, if you go out of here today and say, man, it was burning up at Cross Culture today, and I'm not talking about the temperature. Put that, you know, you, you just never know how God will use things when you put them out there in the in the you know, social, social, I can't even say that, social media world. So, I don't know, it's just, I'm just throwing that, <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. But let's talk about faith, shall we? I'm going to start with this idea uh, this morning. Sometimes faith is hardest to find in the place you most expect to find it. Sometimes faith is hardest to find in the place you most expect to find it. We're in Mark chapter 6. Open your Bibles there. Whether you have an electronic copy, hard copy, uh, it's up here on the screen as well. And you can, you can certainly follow along on the screen. But keeping this in mind, sometimes faith is hardest to find in the place you most expect to find it. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse uh, 1 and reading to verse uh, 6. Jesus uh, went out from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. They, they had heard all about these miracles. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor 
except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Verse 6, and he wondered at their unbelief. Jesus is traveling around the region, around Israel, predominantly in northern Israel at this point, predominantly in the Galilean region. He's going around teaching. He's going around performing miracles. We've seen that as we've begun to walk through the book of Mark. He's, he's casting out demons. He's performing miracles. He's healing people. He's teaching. He, he's doing all of this kind of stuff. And eventually, as he's traveling around, this itinerant preacher, if you will, eventually he makes his way back to his own hometown. He makes his way back to Nazareth. Remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but both Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth. And so Nazareth is where Jesus grows up. And so he makes his way back to Nazareth. On the Sabbath, on the Sabbath day, in in every town in in Israel, it was customary for a a rabbi, a teacher, to stand up and to begin to teach in the synagogue. We've talked about synagogues, but it was just a local meeting place for the Jews, kind of like our version of of a church for 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 Christians today. And they would gather there on the synagogue and it was customary for a rabbi to stand up and begin to teach. And if a uh, guest rabbi, if a traveling rabbi teacher happened to be passing through or happened to be in that town on the Sabbath, it was customary to invite that uh, guest rabbi to give the teaching. Now, Jesus had grown up there, but he had gone out from there. And they had heard who knows what all about Jesus, right? I mean, who knows what all they had heard. But one thing they knew for sure, he had become famous. Everybody knew who Jesus was. And so they invite him, apparently they invite him to give the teaching on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And he stands up and he begins to teach. And as we read just a moment ago, at first it sounds like it's going pretty well. They are, they are astonished at his, at his teaching. They are astonished at his uh, knowledge. And listen, in some sense, it's, it's understandable why they would be so astonished by Jesus' teaching. He was from a, at best, a, a middle-of-the-road, financially speaking, a middle-of-the-road family. He's from a region of, of, of northern Israel, the Galilean region, that was, that was a, just a simple area. Around the Sea of Galilee there, predominantly fishing and farming, that's it. As far as we know, he he had no uh, formal education. He almost certainly was trained by Joseph, Mary's husband, in the craft of carpentry, which he almost certainly was practicing as a carpenter up until he began his ministry at 30 years of age. By the way, if you happen to be wondering... Why did he wait till age 30 to start his ministry? Y'all probably are wondering that, right? Why don't y'all just ask that? Why did he wait till he's 30? I'm glad you asked. Listen, it, it, there may have been several reasons actually why that he waited until he was 30 years of age. One of the reasons uh, could have been uh, that uh, according to, uh, I think it's Numbers chapter 4, a priest had to be at least 30 years of age began, before he began his priestly duty. Duties. And one of the things that we can say about Jesus is that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Hebrews uh, chapter 9 and chapter 11, I think it is. He is our great high priest. And so there may have been some correlation there. 
Also, part of the reason may have been that according to uh, the, uh, Mish- the Mishnah, now the Mishnah, I'm, I'm, uh, remember last week if you were here, I'm, I mentioned the Talmud. The Mishnah was part of the Talmud, all right? It was, it was a collection of, of uh, writings by commentators, by Jewish scribes and, and Jewish rabbis and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, one of the things in the Mishnah was that the, the uh, I forget exactly how they put it, but basically the age of authoritative speaking began at 30 years of age. So apparently, uh, at least in the Jewish culture, until you were 30, you hadn't lived enough life to really have much to say that was going to be of any worth. I, I, you can decide for yourself whether you think that maybe is the idea we ought to bring back around or not, but... But apparently, until you were 30, nobody really was going to listen to what you would say. And we might also, there's, there's also probably a good possibility that Jesus was just taking care of his family. We know from the text here that he had uh, four, I think it was four, uh, half, younger half-brothers. And we know that he had younger half-sisters. We know they're all younger because Jesus was the firstborn, born of a virgin. And we also know, and almost all commentators are universally agreed on this, that Joseph is, is dead at this point. So Joseph has apparently passed from the scene. There's no mention of him here. There's no mention of him at the cross. There's no mention of him at all. So he apparently has passed away. And so it may very well be that Jesus was simply taking care of the family business, taking care of the family, until one of Mary's other uh, sons could grow up enough to, to take over the family business, so to speak. But, but at any point, uh, he did... Uh, start his ministry. He did go out. He did grow. His name did grow. His, his family did grow as he went out and he began to do all this stuff. And so he comes back to Nazareth. They invite him in. He begins to teach. They're astounded. They're astonished. He blows them away. But then it says this. They took offense at him. Sounds like it's going good. Wow, this is amazing. This is this teaching. This is unbelievable. They took offense at him. The Greek word New Testament was originally written in is skandalizo. It means a stumbling block. You can probably surmise that's where we get our word scandal from. It, it, it means a stumbling block. It means an offense. It means something scandalous to you. So you can just, you can just imagine these people. Who, who does this guy think he is? We know, we know him. We know Jesus. We know his mom. We know his brothers and sisters. We grew up with this guy. He built the, the, my kitchen cabinets, for goodness sakes. Well, it wouldn't be kind of awesome if Jesus built your kitchen cabinets. You've got to figure that you're not going to have any problem with those kitchen cabinets. Or couch or whatever. But who, who does this guy think he is? And they took offense in him. Watch this now. As a result, verse, uh, uh, verse 5 then says, And he could do no miracle there, except they laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. In other words... Apparently, there were a few people that were, that were there or that came to him. There were a few people that had enough belief, enough faith to, to come out and to see what this was all about and to come to Jesus. And so he did, but most of the people, so I want you to get, most of the people simply rejected him. Most of the people were offended at him. Most of the people simply were not interested in what he had to say or what he could do. As amazing as it sounds, and Jesus could do but just a few miracles. What, what you have here is an intersection of this mysterious relationship between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Nobody understands totally how these two things operate or work together, but one thing is very clear from the text. 
Jesus was willing to do much more than the people were willing for him to do. And so they would not allow him. They would not believe. They would not. Sometimes faith is hardest to find in the place that you would most expect to find it. And the text says that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Now listen, folks. There are two places in the New Testament where it says that Jesus, God in the flesh. There are two places in the New Testament where it says that God marveled at something. And both of them have to do with faith. In, uh, I think it's Luke 7 and in Matthew 9, uh, both record the account of Jesus marveling at the faith of a, of a Roman Gentile centurion officer. Jesus marveled at the faith of this guy when he says, Jesus, you don't even need to go to my house. I understand authority and how all that works. You can just say the word and my servant will be healed. It says Jesus marveled at his faith. So get this. He marvels at the faith of a Gentile and he marvels at the lack of faith among his own people. Sometimes faith is hardest to find in the place you would most expect to find it. Now listen, we can make, I think it's safe to say, uh, and I, I guess I'm getting up on maybe a little bit of a, of, a, of a soapbox here, but I think we can make some pretty good application of this for our nation today and where we are. In a place where you would expect to find faith in a place that you don't find much faith anymore these days. Listen, do you know, y'all aren't, you, you, you guys that are in school, y'all aren't taught this anymore. We were taught this years ago. Uh, but do you know on, on the very, in some sense you could say on the very night that this nation began. I'm not talking about the Declaration of Independence. I'm talking about way before that. When the pilgrims landed, y'all remember that? Y'all hear something about that? The night before they landed. Some of you may remember this from your classes. The night before they landed, they signed what was known as the Mayflower Compact. Do you know what it says? I happen to have a version of it for you. (laughs) It's a modern version, all right? The the letters have been changed. It looked a lot different uh, back in 1620 than it does today. But here's what the Mayflower Compact, here's what it says. Here's what they signed the night before they came ashore, all right? In the name of God, amen, we whose names are underwritten... The loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, they mean that like reverently, you know, they held him in esteem. Sovereign Lord King James, by the grace of God, he was king by the grace of God, of Great Britain, France, Ireland, king, defender of the faith, etc. Having undertaken, watch this, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of of Virginia. They missed. They, they hit a little north. But d- did you hear what they just said? Because what, do, what have you been told your whole life? Oh, they, they left religious persecution. Religious persecution. That's why religion is bad. We need, there's too much persecution. You, you, too much. Now, there was religious persecution, okay? But do you understand in, from their own words why they say they came? They came for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. To make the name of Christ known. And it, it, it goes goes on. I guess I'll finish it. Uh, Covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. In other words, we're going we're to come together, we're going to do this because of, of why we said. For the, for the glory of God, the advancement of the kingdom, and the honor of, of our king. And by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time as shall be thought most need, most meet and convenient for the general goods of the colony unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. The night before they came ashore. That's what they wrote and that's what they signed. That's why, can I just tell you this? It irks me, it irks me when guys like Bill Maher stand up and make just idiotic statements 
such as America was never a Christian nation. And listen, I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean that to be an insult to him. I'm, it's just based purely on the, the, the ignorance of his understanding of the historical context of that day. Do you know, do you know that 106 of the first 108 colleges and universities founded in this nation were founded solely for the, for the propagation, for the furtherance of the kingdom of God? 106 of the first 108. Schools like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, Dartmouth, Brown, and Rutgers, to name just a few. Do you think, they would, do you think, do you think any of them would own that today? Look at this. Harvard found it. 1636, this was one of their first, this was one of the laws, uh, what they called the laws of Harvard. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, (laughs) and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Harvard University, 1636. Okay, how about this one? How about William and Mary College, founded in 1691? In their charter, the purpose of the founding of William and Mary College, that the Church of Virginia may be furnished with a seminary of ministers of the gospel and that the youth may be piously educated in good letters and manners and that the Christian religion may be propagated among the Western Indians to the glory of Almighty God. That's William and Mary College. How about another one? Yale University, y'all heard of that one? Found it, 1701. For the liberal and religious education of suitable youth to propagate in this wilderness the blessed reformed Protestant religion. Oh, let's keep going. How about another one? How about Princeton? Y'all heard of that one? Jonathan Dickinson, the first president, the Reverend Jonathan Dickinson, a pastor, was the first president of Princeton University. And this is what he said, cursed be all that all that learning that is contrary to the cross of Christ. Is that amazing? Okay, have I got another one? Or is that the last one? Okay, yeah, that's, that's enough of the schools, colleges, and universities. But you also need to know this. Students, the Bible was the first textbook. It really was, the very first textbook. Uh, 1655, I think it was, uh, the New Haven Code, uh, that, that students are ably able duly to read the scriptures and in some competent measure to understand the main grounds and principles of Christian religion necessary to salvation. They were to read, they were to study the Bible, the Bible was to be their textbook, so that that could be the result. Um, do I have any more of those, Tyler, or is that the last one I got? Oh yeah, John Adams. Y'all heard of him? Helped Thomas Jefferson frame the Declaration of Independence. Second President of the United States, John Adams really echoed the sentiments of the founders of our nation when he said, by the way, which he said 20 years before we even became a nation, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. What a utopia, what a paradise would this region be? Now listen, all I'm saying is, if if you look at it and and you look at our history and you think about the fact we, we still print on our money in God we trust, right? We print on our money in God we trust. We have so many versions and translations of the Bible today, it's unbelievable. Virtually every home has a hard copy. Almost every one of you right now have an electronic copy on your phone or on your iPad or, or somewhere you have access to it. 
What I'm saying is, if, if any nation ought to be a nation that knows and understands Jesus, it ought to be this nation. It seems like you ought to find faith here. And yet, never has there been such a lull in the advancement of Christianity in this nation as there is today. Fewer people are going to church. Fewer people are even identifying with any religious affiliation. And way fewer people are making the decisions of their life based on a Christian world view. Sometimes faith is hardest to find in the place you would most expect to find it. Now, real quickly, before, before I move on, I need to ask this question. What about us here, and it may not be everyone here, but what, what about us here who would, who would profess faith in Christ? Is faith found in our lives? In other words, those of us who would say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I walk under his banner. I have professed him as my Lord and Savior. I believe he died on the cross for my sins, rose again for my justification, and he's coming again to receive me unto himself. I, I am a follower, fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. What about us? Can faith be found in our lives? Is faith evident in our lives? Is it something that, that, that we not only can live with, but something that others can see and experience in our lives? Can we, in the midst of circumstances and trials and all that stuff we talked about, can we own the Apostle Paul's words to the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter 4 when he said this? He said, not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I just thought I'd give a dramatic pause there. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation. What if we, are we doing any injustice to the text if we, just, if we change situation to, to trial? I've learned the secret of living in every trial. I've learned the secret of living in every circumstance. Whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Listen, if you feel like I'm throwing you under the bus this morning, it's just because I don't want to be under the bus alone. I I understand that we struggle in this area of walking by faith. I I know that it's difficult, which is why the the second truth I want to bring out this morning is so important. Yes, sometimes faith is hardest to find in the place you would most expect to find it. We should expect to find it in our lives. Here's the second truth. Sometimes faith is easiest to find in the place you most have to have it. And pick it up in verse uh, 7. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt. But to wear sandals... And he added, do not put on two tunics. Jesus, after the Nazareth episode, sends his disciples out. Okay? They've been with him since the beginning of this ministry now, as he's drawn them to him. Uh, They've been a part of this. They've been experiencing this. And it's been good. But you know what? Jesus was not going to be with them forever. He wasn't. As mind-blowing as it, as it may seem to us, this was a plan that God had put in place before the foundation of the world. That Jesus was going to be born, 
that he was going to die to redeem us, and that he was eventually going to return to heaven to await the time when he would come and and receive us. But there was going to be this end of his earthly ministry from his physical person there on the earth. And up until this point, it's pretty much been the Jesus show. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. But I mean, Jesus is doing the teaching. Jesus is doing the miracles. Jesus is the one standing up to the religious uh, leaders and all that kind of stuff. And they were going to have to learn to stand up on and for what they believed. And so, out of that context, Jesus sends them out. And he sends them out with a pair of shoes, one outfit, and a stick. No food, no money. And if most commentators are right, uh, Jesus makes a reference in verse 8 about leaving that purse at home. Many commentators believe that it's referring to what was known as the beggar's purse. In other words, they were not to ask for help and they were not to charge people for the good that they were going to do. Now, people were going to help them. People were going to supply because that's, that's how God works. But they weren't to ask for it and they, and they weren't uh, to, to charge for what they were going to do. Nothing. A pair of sandals, one outfit, one stick. It, it's sink or swim time, boys and girls. I mean, this is where you find out whether God is going to be here or not. Is he going to come through in this situation or not? Is, is this going to happen for me or not? <laughs> That's when faith becomes the most real. When we get to the place where we have to have it. Where it has to be real in our lives. Until then, it's easy to say it. Remember the crowd at Niagara Falls? It's easy to say it. It's another thing to actually live it. And Jesus was forcing his disciples to have to live it. By the way, it's not a bad thing to be unprepared. One of the great things, if, if, if y'all, and I, and I hope y'all do, uh, as we continue to develop mission opportunities uh, out across culture, locally, uh, nationally, internationally, I, I hope y'all really will, will take part in all of those, but especially some of those international trips, I hope all of y'all will take part in those, even though you think, oh, I could never do that. Yes, you could. But if you go, I've got this word of counsel to you. Um, take Rick Freeman or Russell Hill with you because those guys, they're, they're, it's unbelievable the stuff that they have. You're talking about being prepared for wherever they go. They're pre- uh, Rick, for years, I've called Rick Inspector Gadget because he always have, has some new latest tool or technology or, or something uh, to, to go on the trip. So uh, it's not that, that being prepared is, is wrong. It certainly is not. It's just that in this Context In this particular case, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples a very important lesson. And that is the need to actually live your faith. It's great hanging around Jesus. It's great singing the songs. It's great gathering in here and all this kind of stuff. But to actually go out and live it. That's the deal. Now, let me say this. Even though it might, from a physical standpoint, look like the disciples uh, didn't have much or were ill-equipped, the fact is they were actually very well equipped. And here's why. First off, here's what they had. They had the plan. Now listen to me. They probably didn't have as much as the plan as they wanted. You understand what I'm saying? Well, God, if you would just tell me where I start and where I exit and how long it will take and what all will be involved. uh, They probably didn't have as much of the plan as in their human thinking they would like to have. But make no mistake about it, they had the plan. Because, ladies and gentlemen, God 
always has the plan. I want you to hear me. God always has. Matter of fact, I want you to say, will you say that out loud with me? God always has the plan. Always. Uh, a number of years ago, there was this uh, a Jewish rabbi uh, by the name of Harold Kushner that wrote uh, a book entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. The book was based on his own personal experiences. Kushner had had a son that had developed, and I don't remember all the details, but he developed some kind of, of a disease and, and died from that disease. He was, he was going to die from the disease, and there was nothing they could do about it. And Kushner, who was Jewish, he, and he had this belief in God, in that moment asked the question that any, any one of us would have asked, right? Why, God? Why? Why is not a bad question, necessarily. Why, God? Unfortunately, rather than letting God answer that question, Kushner answered the question himself, or he let culture answer it, or whatever the case may be. But Kushner came to the conclusion that, that because he wanted to hold on to the idea that God is good, he had to let go of, he had to reject the idea that God was omnipotent. You understand? He had to reject the idea, well, God must not be all-powerful. God must not, not, must not have control. God must, must not really have his hands on the wheel. Maybe he got this whole thing started, and he's a good God, and it was a good idea, and he, and he wants, wanted to love us, and he wants to love us. But, but basically, we're at fate's mercy. And the book was a bestseller, and it sold millions of copies, and it is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Listen, <laughs> We may not always have a clue what God is doing. But you better know God has the plan. you got to know that if you're going to operate in the realm of faith. Not only did they have the plan, uh, but second, they had this. They, they had a partner. The text says that Jesus sent them out in pairs. He sent them out together. He sent them out to to be there for each other, to minister to one another, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another. To protect one another. It is the body. The body of Christ. Part of that plan, part of God's plan is that the the church. You know who the church is? Yeah, that's right. All of us who profess faith in Christ. That the church would make up this one body. Hey, we're unique. Some of us are uniquer than others. But together we make up this body. Look at how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans uh, chapter 12. For just as we have many members, right, in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We need each other. And I realize, man, we, we don't understand. Why, why do they do that? Why do they act that way? Why do they let their kids do that? Why do, why do they have this? Why don't they drive a, all this stuff? That we do. We get on each other's nerves and we, and we don't understand. But we better understand that we are a body. And, it, and we need each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to come alongside one another. Just as those disciples needed one another. Even then. They, they had a partner. They had them with it. And let me give you one more that they had. They had his power. There in uh, verse 7 or verse 8. It says that, they, that Jesus was giving them authority. Jesus was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. We've already looked at this several times in the book of Mark, but unclean spirits is a reference to uh, the spiritual enemy. It's a reference to demonic activity. It's a, it's a reference to demons. 
And Jesus did not send them out unequipped. They felt like they were because they, they got very little in their hands. But in fact, they were going in his power. And listen, you can do a lot in the power of God. And they needed it. Because look at Ephesians chapter 6. You probably, maybe you've read this many times. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is no joke, folks. I often use this passage of Scripture when I'm counseling marriages that are in crisis. And I often try and remind the couple that are just ready to tear each other's throats out that, in fact, your spouse is not your enemy. I think when I say that several times, if they, some of them had had a gun, they would have shot me. But the truth is, the reality is, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your coworker, whether it, it, it's whatever it is, the real enemy is right up there. And you're familiar with this passage, 1 Peter chapter 5. Be alert and of sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Spiritually speaking, how can I just eat this guy's lunch? How can I destroy her faith? How can I steal the love that they have in their marriage? How can I make joy something uh, absent in their lives? You better believe that stuff goes on, folks. They had the plan, they had a partner, and they had his power working for them. Obviously, the same thing, ladies and gentlemen, let's bring it home. The same thing is true for you and for me in our lives. We do have a plan. I know we don't have enough of the plan. <laughs> I know we don't have enough of a plan. But can you see why? Can you see why God puts us in positions where we have to, to sink or swim when it comes to faith? When, when we have to operate in faith? Can you see why God is trying to put us there all the time? And what do we do? We cry and we moan and we squirm and we beg God to get us out of it. And we, and we make deals with God to get us out of it. And if, we, and if we could only just grab a hold of this truth that God loves us so much that he's going to put us in a place where we have to have it. We have to operate by faith because the writer of Hebrews reminds us without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarded of those who seek him. I, there's a lot of stuff I don't understand about God. There's a lot of stuff I'm still learning. And the more I read God's word, the more I'm blown away by how much I don't know. But this I know, there is something to faith, ladies and gentlemen. There is something to operating in the realm of faith that is absolutely critical critical for your relationship with God. And so, just remember, there, there, we, we do have the plan. We may not have as much as we want, we may not know, but we can walk out knowing that God is going before us and that He is accomplishing His purposes and His plans. And we have a partner. Those of us, we are the body of Christ. And one of the things that, that we say sometimes around here at Cross Culture, one of our sayings is, it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship. And that is so absolutely true. You were created for relationship. First and foremost, relationship with God and relationship with others. In the book of Genesis, I think in Genesis chapter 2, it says that then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Obviously, in that context, it's talking about a, a marital relationship and, and that sort of thing. But the truth is, in the overall context of our lives, we need each other. And I know, like I said, I know we get on each other's nerves. And I know we don't understand. And I know, but we need each other. We need to protect each other and provide for each other. And, and we have his power. 
we have his power. I need to say this and we'll close. We have his power as we operate in faith. Because that's the key, right? Without faith, you, you can't be in a position of pleasing God. You have to operate in the realm of faith. So if you operate in the realm of faith, you can know that you are operating in the realm of God's power. And I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I need God's power in my life. Man, do I need God's power in my life. Sometimes faith is easiest to find in the place you most have to have it. The next time you find yourself in that place, which for some of you is like right now, remind yourself, God, I don't like my circumstances. I don't like what I'm going through. I don't understand what I'm going through. But God, I want to walk by faith because I want to please you. So I want to have faith. Help me to trust in your plan. Work with those that you bring into my body. And listen, can I just say, can I just throw this out here? If you're not in a life group, you're missing so much, such a vital part of what this, this body is. You really are. I really, I just encourage you, if you're not in a life group, why not even before you leave here today, why don't you take that connect card, put your name on there, and say more information about life group. Because it is so much within the context of that life group that you build relationships and, and that you minister to each other and you help each other and you can cry with each other when you need and you laugh and you can, you can do all of that kind of stuff within the context of life group. That's, that's when the body really begins to become a body and to operate in God's power. Sometimes faith is easiest to find in the place where you have to have it. If that's where you are, then praise God. Well, as you just heard Pastor Clay explain, not only is faith sometimes hardest to find in the place where you most expect to find it, but sometimes faith is easiest to find in the place you most have to have it. The disciples were given an assignment that was probably pretty scary. They weren't to take any food or money with them. They were to literally walk by faith and trust God to provide for them. God doesn't always ask us to go somewhere without any provisions, but like the disciples, He does ask us to walk by faith and trust Him to provide whatever we need for whatever God calls us to do. Like the disciples, we're really not alone in the things God calls us to. What about you? Can faith be found in your life? We're glad you joined us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.